Welcome to One Does Not Simply, where three friends take on the Lord of the Rings and go on some unexpected journeys. I'm Wanda. I'm Navia. And I'm Ashani. This is episode 12, One Does Not Simply Delve Too Deep. As always, there will be spoilers for the entire Tolkienverse ahead. With that said, let's get right to it. So, in these chapters, which are chapters four and five of book two of Fellowship, the traveling party, after deciding that they cannot take the mountain pass, attempt to go through the mines of Moria. So, as they travel into the mines, they have to get past the Watcher in the Water, aka the giant squid, and... Then once inside the mines, they have to deal with the fact that they encounter some fallen friends as well as some orcs and the Balrog. The Bally Fitness Balrog. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, there were a lot of action scenes in these two chapters. There's a lot of sort of moments of rising and building tension. And I... I know that one of the things that sometimes gets joked about with Tolkien is that he's really not keen on writing big battle scenes, but he does get into it here. And I'm wondering what you two thought of that. My note was that I, I stand by that he's not great at writing fight scenes, but he's excellent at writing the buildup into fight scenes. Um, I, I noticed that like the tension as the enemy approaches as they're all readying to do something, they don't know what exactly it's going to be yet. Like that, those parts are brilliantly written. And then as soon as the actual combat starts, it, all of the tension disappears. It's kind of just like, and then this person did this, and then this person did this. And there's no focus on a singular character. There's no allowing the tension to build even further by giving us what that character is thinking in the moment. It's very just bam, 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 this, this, this happened. Yeah, I agree. That's really smart. I don't think that he does any, um, he, he doesn't do much work developing people's emotions or the reader's emotions while the fighting is actually going on. And maybe that's a nod to how if you're like, maybe that's just because if you're having a fight, you're not, you're not really emoting that much. Yeah, I will say that I think what you were describing, Navia, in terms of it's just sort of, and then that someone did this and someone did that is one of those pieces where maybe that's sort of accurate in that they're not thinking tons or they're not really taking the time to sort of emote or reflect in the middle of these action scenes. But I also think the issue with that is that it takes away a lot of the feeling of like reaction to what happens. And the reason I feel this way is I almost missed the part where Frodo gets speared and they all think he's dead. It got buried in the middle of a bunch of different actions and then mm -hmm. it just keeps going. And I then, almost like, missed a lot of stuff in these chapters. Yeah, Sorry. right? Keep, keep going, keep going. No, but I think that's the issue is you yeah. miss stuff because it just gets buried and there's no sense of like, if you saw your friend get speared, even if you're in the middle of a battle, like you're going to have a reaction to that. 
Yeah, the only reaction you actually get to that moment, and maybe which is what clues you into that something happened, is that Aragorn is suddenly like, oh, I thought you were dead. Yeah. And Aragorn doesn't even bring it up until after they're out of the room, right? Right. (laughs) It was actually like Aragorn picks him up to carry him out of the room. And I was like, oh, Frodo got stabbed. That's why. Yeah, there's this moment, there's this moment in like the, when, when Frodo says, put me down, Aragorn, I can walk. And you realize that everybody has collectively just taken a minute to not say anything about how everyone thinks that Frodo's dead. (laughs) (laughs) Just, I mean, think about that in context, though. You are on this mission and this guy has the ring and he is like basically your one hope of getting this thing to Mordor and nobody says a single thing about the fact that they thought he was dead. Yeah. What's the contingency plan here? Like if Aragorn and Gandalf thought Frodo had just been stabbed fatally, like what was the plan? Were they just going to pick someone else to be the ring bearer? They were just going to carry Frodo's body to Mordor with the ring still on it. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> yeah, throw the whole thing in Mount Doom. <laughs> just Frodo's slowly decaying corpse (laughs) oh although this does bring up an interesting theory about the ring is this like a a plot hole potentially like could you just have the ring on a dead person that you are then carrying and then it wouldn't affect you at all (laughs) (laughs) I mean (laughs) I guess what I would say is (laughs) There's some arguments for, like, proximity has an impact, but not as much of an impact as wearing it, right? Because Smeagol is sort of corrupted by the ring before he puts it on. And I think, like, we see Sam being impacted before, like, and Sam doesn't put it on, right? But we see Sam being impacted as he travels with Frodo and Gollum. But also, arguably, Sam is not impacted as much as Frodo is. So at the very least, it's like a layer of corpse shielding. (laughs) Yeah, it also kind of brings you back to that. Why does this trope exist? I have to wear this thing while I'm, you know, on a mission to destroy it. (laughs) Right. Put it in a lead line box. Yeah. Give everybody like a piece of cake and one of the pieces has the ring. You can't (laughs) eat the cake until you get to Mordor. One does not simply eat the ring. <laughs> uh, that was one we didn't, I guess, when we when we were like brainstorming other things they could have done besides taking the ring to Mordor. Eat the ring was not one that we came up with. It's I true. think it was something, I want to say it was something we discussed briefly in one of our pre-episode chats, because I'm pretty sure <laughs> we had talked about the fact that like, if you eat it, it's just going to come back out again. Well, we all, we did discuss what would happen if like a sea creature ate it, yeah. which presumably would result in the very giant squid creature that we see in this chapter. Right. But also yeah. then like it's just going to come out as squid poop. I suppose. The squid isn't even a real thing though. I mean, I think that what we like in in the middle of the the chapter that leads up to them being in Moria, they encounter these wargs, which are wolves of Sauron, and they slay a bunch of the wargs. And then in, in the morning, the, the bodies of the wargs are gone. Did you guys catch that? Yeah. So l- let's do a quick run through, actually, of, of all the enemies they encounter in this chapter, because it's more than we've ever seen before. A lot of foes in this chapter. Yeah. A lot of yeah. foes. 
So they see the wargs first, and they manage to defeat the wargs through a combination of Legolas shooting arrows and Gandalf just standing there and saying things. Oh, and at some point we're going to have to come back to Gandalf saying things. Oh, yes. And then um, then they encounter this, this watcher in the water, which is this giant squid creature that attacks Frodo. And then um, then they have the orc battle. And then eventually they meet the Balrog. Yeah. Did I miss any? Hilariously, because I don't think I would have remembered this if you had paid me. They meet another group of orcs waiting to ambush them outside of Moria, <laughs> oh, yeah. right? There's just like a like a three-sentence mention of like, and then as they fled the mines, there was a group of orcs there, and they just like killed one of them, and the rest ran away. And it yes, was- <laughs> it, it makes sense. It makes a lot yeah. of sense that the orcs would do that. Why the wouldn't first you sign have a strategy that, they, right? that we've seen in this in this book so far? What was hilarious to me, though, is like the orcs have the strategy of we're going to ambush these guys, which, uh, as you say, Wanda, totally makes sense, right? Very strategic, 10 out of 10 for good planning. What doesn't make sense is the fact that like literally it takes killing one of them for the rest of them to be like, eh, actually, no thanks. That actually that actually happened a few times in the chapter, too. Like, the initial encounter with the wargs, yeah. as soon as Legolas killed one of them, the rest of them ran away. But then they were regrouping, right? These orcs never show up again. So it's like, what exactly did you anticipate? That, like, they weren't going to fight back when you ambushed them? And I kind of don't understand what the orc motivation is there, right? Their sole purpose is to do Sauron's bidding. So this whole idea of them like getting scared and running away <laughs> seems entirely counterproductive. I genuinely read that and I thought to myself, this is Tolkien recognizing that it makes sense for the orcs to have laid an ambush. And also I don't want to write this fight scene, so they're just going <laughs> to run away. Like that was what it felt like. I, still the running away doesn't make sense. Like why wouldn't you write like a real quick like Legolas shot, like, three arrows, Aragorn beheaded one of them, they were dealt with. <laughs> like, that's it. They were dealt with. <laughs> yeah, you want to, you want to get, you want to be, like, a little bit more realistic than, than, than what Tolkien wrote. I mean, maybe the works are just, they've just fucking had it at this point. <laughs> yeah. Or, ooh, alternate theory, maybe the orcs are also running from the Balrog at this point. Yeah, I think this is actually an interesting thing to talk about. Um, do the are are the orcs and the Balrog in league with each other? The orcs are definitely terrified of the Balrog. Yeah, right. Like they immediately retreat when they see this thing coming. Oh, is that in the chapter? But they don't yeah. retreat so much as they like get out of its way, right? I mean, that's different. Where they recognize that they're sort of theoretically on the same side, and also this is a much sort of bigger, meaner enemy and they don't want to get squished in the collateral damage. Are they even on the same side, though? Because we get this a a, a mention a few times in this chapter about the idea of some things are evil because they are on Sauron's side and some things are just evil. And it seemed like the Watcher in the Water was one of those things. And it seems like the Balrog might be another where... Well, the the things that have... um, The things that are on Sauron's side, we know them because they always strike Frodo first. Like, right. the wargs go for Frodo first, and I think the Watcher goes for Frodo first. Ooh, that was that was interesting. I think this was actually called out as a point of subtlety, though, with the Watcher, where 
Gandalf initially thinks that this thing is just like some creature that is lurking, but then he has this moment of doubt when it does go for Frodo first, and then he's like, what's really going on here? I guess what I would want to know is whether or not, because my perception was definitely that the Watcher is not allied with Sauron. It's just its own sort of entity. But I'm wondering whether or not other powerful evil entities might not have their own interest in the ring, right? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. isn't it entirely possible that the Watcher goes for Frodo, not so much because it's trying to get the ring for Sauron as it is just trying to get the ring? Which really corroborates your theory about the about the danger of giving a squid the ring, which <laughs> I didn't give a lot of credence to a couple weeks ago, but perhaps should have. Galaxy Turns out brain. Squid, squid wraith is real. <laughs> yeah, the galaxy brain take. Regarding the Balrog, I will say the one thing that makes me think it might be at least loosely allied with Sauron is. <laughs> in the they're taking the hobbits to Isengard video, as you will <laughs> the recall. The Balrog of Morgoth. <laughs> right. Well, so that's the thing, right, is that yeah. that's a very specific line, and I, I feel like it wouldn't have made it into the movies. We're not there yet in the books, but I feel like it wouldn't have made it into the movies if that wasn't an identification that gets made in the books, right? Because it's a that's really true. specific identification. Legolas in the movies could have just said a Balrog. It's not like we've yeah. been introduced to... like Morgoth. Um, So I'm kind of feeling like at the very least loose allies, right? Mm -hmm. So a brief, brief lore background. Morgoth is another name for Melkor. Mm -hmm. Yes. And so Melkor was like the first Dark Lord before Sauron took over and the Balrogs were his servants. Right. So when they say the Balrog of Morgoth, like that's what they're referring to. And Sauron was also, like, under him as a lieutenant or something, right, basically? Mm -hmm, Yeah, he was, like, his lieutenant, and then when he was defeated, I guess Sauron not really took up his mantle, per se, but (laughs) continued in his evil ways, I suppose. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's definitely interesting, because the, the Balrog is there well before any of this, like, ring-related stuff happens, right? He is Durin's bane, he's the thing that ends up Hey, let's not rush to judgment. We don't know it's a he. That's <laughs> true. Uh, the, the she who has not been identified. <laughs> she has something to say. <laughs> Honestly, I would love for the Balrog. Like, I'm tired of the trope of just this, like, very muscly, vaguely humanoid demon man. I want there to be a vaguely, like, humanoid and incredibly muscled demon lady. I guess we don't really... Look, the Balrog is never referred to by pronouns in this chapter. We don't know. So... (laughs) (laughs) The Balrog is present in Moria well before this meeting, right? It is the thing that the dwarves delved too deep and awoke. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of just there doing its evil thing. I have to wonder, like, if if Balrog did get his hands on the ring, what would he do? He would not give it to Sauron... Mm. Or would he, you know? Like, that? the servants of Sauron are after getting back to Sauron. What is the Balrog's goal? I do think there's precedent for sort of there being a lot of drama and sort of tumultuousness around if multiple sort of powerful 
servants or followers of a single unifying lord, right? And then that lord passes away. And one of them claims the mantle, the other one's not necessarily just sort of casually falling in line afterwards, Mm -hmm. right? So I could sort of see the Balrog not not immediately going, and the Balrog doesn't even really go for the ring, right? Or at least it's not sort of clear that the Balrog is only interested in going for the ring. The Balrog is there to fuck shit up and have a good time. Let's let's actually delve into that a little bit, because I noticed at the beginning of this chapter that there were a couple of mentions by various characters of the idea that they kind of knew that something was coming for Gandalf in Moria. Um, Aragorn says it once, and I think Sam says it once, where they're just like, you know, are you sure, Gandalf, that you want to go into Moria? Yeah, somebody says, like, we're, we're not scared for ourselves, we're scared for you. Yeah, yeah that's so there's Aragorn. almost this, like... There's almost some kind of like prophecy that has occurred or something where they know somehow Moria is dangerous for Gandalf, which begs the question, is the Balrog specifically there for Gandalf? Mm. I think you could look at the Balrog is not there because Gandalf is there, but knowing that the Balrog is in Moria and also looking at the company as a whole it would fall to Gandalf to deal with it if they encounter it. You know, Mm -hmm. like the Balrog is not an enemy that you can kill with a sword or shoot with an arrow. Right. Right. So knowing that the Balrog is in Moria and that they might encounter it, because Elrond, I think, in a previous chapter is one of the ones who's like, hmm, this might be sort of Gandalf's last task, right? And... Mm -hmm. So I wonder how much of that was knowing that if they do encounter the Balrog, it's going to have to be Gandalf's job to take it on. Ooh, I really, I wish I had my book on me because I really want to flip back and see if Elrond specifically said that it'll be Gandalf the Grey's last task because that would have been well, a huge Well, I have off. a digital copy, so let me see if I can pull that up really quick. But yeah, I think it's... The foreshadowing is interesting, and it kind of ties back in with what you were saying right at the beginning about Tolkien does a good job of building suspense. Um, And I'm wondering if there were parts throughout these chapters that you found effective or that you were kind of surprised by in terms of feeling invested or feeling tense about what was going to come up next. Yeah, so they only introduced the Balrog in like the last three pages of chapter five. Mm -hmm. And so you're spending, if you know what's coming, you're spending the entire, the entire, like, uh, the entirety of chapter five and most of chapter four, because they're already in Moria in chapter four, waiting for this to happen. And they're just kind of going through rooms and finding like old clues and talking about what might have happened to Balin. And they're going relatively slowly and they stop and they have dinner and they go to sleep and they think about stuff. And you're like, okay, but but when's it actually going to happen? And they really only get to like the, they really only get to this climactic fight scene when they're almost at the gates in the East. So I think that was part of what, what worked mm-hmm. and like what makes it so scary. Yeah. I found a lot of like um, horror movie style tropes in, in those chapters where kind of like mm-hmm. what you were saying, where they're just doing this very slowly and 
almost like you're watching a horror movie. You're like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, hurry up, you know? You know that you're not supposed to be here. And then there were a couple things where it was like, um, when they were by the tomb and they were, and Gandalf was reading this book and they're reading about somebody being unable to get out of this room that they're currently standing in, which was like such a horror movie style thing to be happening. <laughs> Um, I thought that was a really cool Yeah, what are you device. doing just standing there reading the book? Yeah. Yeah, and, and that last that last line in the book that was like, we cannot get out, we cannot get out. I was just like, oh my god. <laughs> this, is, this is really intense. I can't think about what else to write, so I'm gonna write that thing again. Yeah, or or even when Pippin um like he drops the pebble in the water and then nothing happens for a while. Right? They they hear something and then they just go to sleep. And that's all you hear about that for like quite a few pages. And you you and Pippin, the character, know in your minds something is coming. There is no way what I just did has no repercussions, mm-hmm. right? But you don't know what it is and it takes a while to build up to it. I I thought all of these were very effective devices for building that tension. And honestly, even knowing what was going to happen because I'm familiar with this story, like I found myself sucked into some of those moments. Yeah, I was all in. I was on the edge of my seat for most of chapters four and five. Yeah. Also, oh, shout out to this really scary bridge that they mentioned at the <laughs> end. Like, forget all this horror. That bridge was the most terrifying thing in this chapter. So did you mention that you have a fear of bridges? Yeah, I have like an irrational fear of bridges to start with. But this bridge in this chapter is it's specifically constructed as a defense mechanism, and it's described as very narrow, and it has no railings, and on either side is just this chasm. Yeah. yeah. You could not pay me to cross this bridge. I want to make some <laughs> joke about it being like the low center of gravity test. <laughs> right? It's for dwarves only. No, but genuinely, I, I totally agree with you. That bridge... Even just reading the description of it, I was like, nope, nope. I would I would take my chances with the giant flaming demon, right? Like, Yeah. And then, of course, in the movie, it's all the more horrifying because this bridge is collapsing while they're on it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, apparently, oh, I did think it was really in- interesting that he mentioned it was specifically constructed by the dwarves to force enemies to cross it in a single file. That's genius, because, you know, if somebody is trying to get in and they're like your bud, then they can just cross this bridge. But if it's an enemy and they're trying to ambush you and they have to cross this in a line, kind of makes you wonder how the orcs did it. But I guess the only sort of argument that you could say is, well, if the Balrog played a role in that, right, or was like they could pick them off as they left the halls. Also, apparently there's like several other entrances, so they're just going to use one of those. Um, Okay, so I have an answer for you, and then I have a question for you all. The answer is that uh, Elrond does not make specific reference to Gandalf the Grey. He just says Gandalf, so unfortunately that theory, while a good one... That would have been a really cool Yeah, it doesn't quite pan out. Um, But since we're talking about this bridge and the Balrog, I want to get your read on the change here made between... Mm the movie and the book, because I really thought this was an interesting, nuanced little difference in when you describe it. And the difference I'm talking about is that the the thing Gandalf says to the Balrog in the books is you cannot pass. 
And of course, the famous line from the movies is, you shall not pass, uh, said in Ian McKellen's lovely, wonderful, dramatic voice. And Such an iconic scene. Yeah. Um, how did you read You Cannot Pass? This was actually, I think, an unintentional choice that Ian McKellen made, and they liked it so much that they kept it. But I think there's a significant difference between the feeling of cannot and shall not, because cannot has this connotation of like, I really don't want you to, like, please don't, you know? <laughs> hey, Mr. Balrog, <laughs> sir, please don't pass. <laughs> and I don't know why it has that feeling, because really what it's saying is like, you are forbidden from passing, but somehow shall not feels more intentional on the part of the person who's involved mm -hmm. where Gandalf is saying, I'm not going to let you pass. Yeah. Yeah, it's an act of aggression. Mm-hmm. Versus, versus how you uh, you cannot pass is more like a it's more like a warning. Yeah. What did you think, Ashani? I kind of got the same or a similar read in that, for all that Gandalf has been grandstanding multiple times in these two chapters, right? He basically shouts at the wargs to try and get them to go away, and they don't. Which doesn't work. Yeah, right? Because they go away because Legolas shoots one of them, which frankly seems like a much more effective problem-solving method. Um, and then... He does the same thing with the orcs. <laughs> right? Who dares disturb? And I'm like, okay, buddy, we've, we've tried this before, and it hasn't worked for you. It's honestly no wonder Boromir is so skeptical about Gandalf's abilities <laughs> right. at this point. And I mean, it's not that he isn't powerful, right? He does actually end up demonstrating sort of great magic in the second battle with the wargs. But it really felt like there was an air of desperation in the confrontation with the Balrog that there wasn't as much of in the other two fights, that it really didn't seem like oh, yeah, I've definitely got this. It was like, oh, okay, like, I've got to do this, but mm, I don't know that it's going to turn out in my favor. There's a funny moment, actually, when, like, leading up to his confrontation with the Balrog, where he, uh, he like, realizes, isn't, he, he like, realizes that he's going to have to fight it, and he's like, oh, boy. Yeah. Like, that, like, like yeah. Gandalf's reaction is, is equivalent to, like, just a statement of, ah, yeah. <laughs> I was going to mention that too. Yeah. It, it, because they're all like in that moment of terror and um, uh, two of the other characters are like, what are yeah. we going to do? Legolas is Gandalf actively is just like, screaming. <laughs> he's, just, he's just saying, I, I. <laughs> and Gandalf is, yeah, Gandalf basically says like, I'm weary. Yeah, which, by the way, this is a major BDE move for him to just be like, well, I guess I gotta do this. It seemed to me more like he he didn't even give a fuck at that point whether he lived or died. Yeah, it's interesting because he does come off as really, like, just over it. But then the actual sort of confrontation, it does feel like he's tired and he doesn't care if he lives or dies, but he's also not really expecting necessarily to live. Yeah, it's almost like he knows that he has encountered the thing that they all thought was coming for him. Yeah. Yeah, that makes the most sense, right? Like, given given everything else that goes on in these chapters is that is that Gandalf leads them into Moria with a lot more confidence than the rest of them have. Um, and that confidence actually comes from his knowledge that He's probably going to have to sacrifice himself 
but then everybody else is gonna mm-hmm. make it out do you think there's like a freedom in knowing that you're gonna not make it out of something that like lets you just go off like this I think about that sometimes because I think like there's there's situations that I've been in where like I I knew that there was basically only one way out and it it didn't make it it didn't make it not scary. Mm-hmm. That is interesting because I always think about, you know, what would I do if I was faced with a situation that required some kind of heroic action? Like mm-hmm. would I be the heroic person or would I just cower? Yeah. I think you'd be a hero. Thanks, Wanda. (laughs) That means a lot. (laughs) Actually, so when I was reading this chapter about the wargs um, who take the form of like giant wolves attacking this campsite, um, I was taken back to this moment when Wanda and I were camping in the Gobi Desert a few years ago. Okay, you have to tell the story in some detail because this is completely wiped from my mind. I can't believe that because it was terrifying when it happened. (laughs) But but basically, we the first night that we were in the Gobi Desert, I suddenly woke up in the middle of the night because I heard like something walking outside of our tent. And it became apparent that it was clearly an animal as as I lay awake there. And then this animal started sniffing the tent. And at this point, I'm like racking my brains for what animals are in the Gobi Desert in Mongolia. And the oh, only yeah, this thing, is coming back. This is coming the only back thing me. my mind can come up with is this is a wolf. These are wolves. We're gonna die. <laughs> and so um, I lay awake for about an hour, just like scared out of my mind, but not wanting to wake Wanda up because I was like, maybe it's better if she just dies in her <laughs> sleep instead of being really scared. <laughs> And this whole time I was thinking about how I had my backpack in the tent and I had cliff bars in my backpack. And I was like, I'm such an idiot. The number one rule of camping is not to have food in your tent, uh, especially if you grew up in Washington, because there are bears here. You're supposed (laughs) to know. Yeah, you're supposed to know. I'm like, I'm so dumb that I will be the death of us. (laughs) And and, um, finally, the like, daylight came and we heard like the rest of our group wake up and Wanda went outside and she was like oh my god there's an entire herd of wild horses just hanging out outside of our tents I think I've suppressed this memory because there's just nothing there's like nothing like it that has happened since then I think it is the one moment in my life where I was like completely certain that I was gonna die (laughs) It was, I don't know why. And horribly. Yeah, I I was, yeah, that was the worst part. I was thinking about what an awful death it was going to be. You're going to die like, uh, like, uh, like Hugh Glass. (laughs) I can't believe that in, like, you were camping in a campsite, right? There were, like, lots. No, no. No. This was not a campsite. We were in the middle of the desert. Meaning a campsite in the sense of, it was out in the middle of nowhere, but it was a group of people. Yeah, but those people might not have been so stupid as to have cliff bars in their backpack. Yeah, because you know the one thing that wolves really love is a cliff bar. <laughs> wolves are famous <laughs> for know. being omnivores. Wait, but what were you going to say? Go ahead and finish your judgment of me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I just, I find it vaguely hilarious, A, that you were like, I'm just going to let Wanda die in peace. She doesn't need to know what's happening. Let her just die. It seemed like a That's kindness what I was at the time. How you're gonna be? How you'd be a hero? <laughs> that was my small act of heroism was to just let you die in your sleep. 
not the hero we want. <laughs> I mean, the other part is I feel like a group of, what, six or seven? That's not that big of a number. No, but... Especially when you're talking about taking on wolves. Yeah, it's not like you're fighting timber wolves or something. Like, well, what else are they? <laughs> they're wolves. <laughs> Still, they're not going to aggress on people who are, All like, right. screaming and banging things. Like, Ishani out here acting like some kind of Mongolian wolf expert, <laughs> like she wouldn't have been scared witless. <laughs> I don't think my default thought would have been, oh, it's definitely wolves and they're coming for my presumably sealed cliff bar look for any of you out there listening who camp or are thinking about going camping oh i figured we were gonna cut most of the story <laughs> don't don't have food in your bags yes, no how could you cut this this is a this is a warning tale for our listeners right okay we've now got uh, well actually what i was going to say was that you're the pippin of this group I am 100%. Right. This is the, I I had to, I just had to throw a rock down this deep, dark well. I just had to have cliff bars in case I got hungry. (laughs) Guys, but what about second breakfast? (laughs) I think that we should make screaming like Legolas, uh, like a, like a, an aphorism for being like super scared and wetting your pants. Who screams with the phrase I, I, <laughs> I, 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 it was just written as yeah. AI, AI. What That's is that? what he was afraid of. He <laughs> saw far in the future. <laughs> the AI is coming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Legolas knows. He's like the only thing that can, that is going to come close to being like an elf. That's how good his I was going to say, is. what do your elf eyes see? <laughs> God damn. The police state. What does your elf AI see? Oh. <sighs> Okay. Maybe that's what they were working on. I mean, orcs are kind of AI, right? Lord of the Rings Matrix crossover. Let's go. Uh, (laughs) Okay. I think... Uh, Where were we? (laughs) We were talking about... You cannot pass. Yeah, you cannot pass and you shall not pass. I feel like this was a chapter where I had a lot of thoughts about how I would fix Tolkien fix him i feel like we just got to the we just got to the point where he's delivering on some of the things that we that you guys all wanted like earlier on you get some of your character development that's true he is doing you better get, like um yeah. i was noticing that you get you get a lot of passages um where you you feel like you're really in in frodo's shoes um and this is all frodo mm-hmm. by the way like this like these last two chapters i feel like have all been from frodo's perspective and it feels like you kind of disappear into a into a world in which he's the only person that you're seeing you're seeing yeah. things through um all the way down to like how it feels when they go over the stream and there's a sentence that's like frodo hated how grimy the stream was and i was like oh look who's trying to get readers in on the action it's jr tolkien <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. It's John Rolkin Rolkin Tolkien. <laughs> Rolkin no, that's Rolkin. true. That is a good point, Wanda, that it is much more sort of perspective taking and character and relationship focused for all of the action scenes that there are. There's a lot of sort of follow through on some of these things. And there's a lot more, like, show-don't-tell as well, like, with mm-hmm. the little devices, like, the drum beats in the background that were leading to, you know, the tension amping up and stuff. Also, quick shout-out to Howard Shore. The Bridge of Khazad-dûm is, like, 
it's the so good of lord of the rings it's so good but yeah those, yeah especially like the way it starts with those drum beats yeah incredible in the book it's corny though it's like doom doom yeah doom. it's a little on the nose <laughs> the drum beats are all written as d-o-o-m <laughs> well some of them are doom boom it's a little vanga boys i listened to techno when i was listening to when i was reading this <laughs> chapter and it felt good the very different soundtrack yeah, that's true. I guess what I should say is rather than feeling like I was frustrated with the style of the chapters overall, when I say, like, oh, I wanted to fix Tolkien, it was because he was so close, right? It felt like he was so close to giving me 100% of what I wanted. And then it just, there were a couple of places where it fell short. He couldn't right? quite get over the line with you. Yeah, I was like, buddy, we're plateauing here. Come on. Where's the climax? For me, that moment was when there was another song. Oh, and I yeah, was like, that really... really? This is where we're going to just insert a so- Like, bro, we are at the peak of the tension mm-hmm. of this chapter. Who is just in the minds of Moria, like, surrounded by orcs, knowing that there's danger around, and they're like, let's sing a song. Yes, yeah. Screw Pippin's Pebble. Gimli is singing a song. Right? Yeah, exactly. Like, you want to draw attention to yourself, just sing in this cavernous mine where your voice is definitely echoing. Yeah. And then that chapter ends with them discovering Balin's tomb and Frodo being like, oh, I knew he was dead, <laughs> which is just so tactless. <laughs> so it's tactless. It's tactless, but it's, it's kind of true, though. I mean... Like, the dude was had disappeared and no one had heard from him for years. Like, what did they think happened? Yeah, but would you say that in front of, like, a grieving relative? I suppose not, but also, like, Gimli should have known. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't, like, it was an accurate statement, for sure. I think many of them probably suspected that Balin had not just gone sort of incommunicado for no good reason. But also, ugh. okay, sorry if this is, like... I'm just going to enter the realm of tactless Frodo here, but but um, how well did Gimli actually know Balin? I don't think anybody is, is like, being attacked and they're so struck by grief that they're like, no, I must have this moment to myself. Well, he must have known him a little bit because his peer was someone where um, Gimli could remember his handwriting. And Balin doesn't leave the Lonely Mountain until, like, relatively recently. Like, it was the relatively true, recent yeah. It's past. only been five years, right? Something like that, yeah. So presumably right, Gimli right. grew up around sort of... Fine, fine. Grief is... Gr- the grief is justified. However, I still think it's completely unjustified to ignore a fight going on around you. <laughs> on the other hand, on the other hand, like, someone I know has pointed out before that it's, like, really weird in the movies how they... They like they like discovered that this like whole company of people has just like perished and nobody ever says anything about it. Like no one is ever well, like Gimli has a has a moment where he's just like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> but it's just him. <laughs> nobody else ever really says anything. Everyone's like, okay. It's a little bit like the Frodo is dead thing, right? They're just like, okay, we're not gonna talk about it. Yeah. You do get the sense though that like there's a lack of caring on everyone's behalf of what happened to other races cuz we already saw this with with Gondor's plight, right? Well, what would you do? I mean, I think if like if you were if you were like sucked into uh if you were sucked into like a crew of Spaniards. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's like yeah, what would you do if you encountered a, like a clear tragedy that had happened but like you didn't know anyone involved? 
I mean, I imagine we would react like when we react to tragedies that we read in the news, right? Where we're just like, oh, that's really sad. Yeah. Yeah. But all of these distances are like theoretically walkable, right? Like, oh, yeah, wait. Can we talk about this distance for a second? So the mines of Moria are described as being 40 miles from one end to the other. And they're in here for, I think, two and a half days. They're crossing some pretty crazy distances in this chapter in general. Yeah. I think in one day they do, like, they do a casual 20 miles. Yeah. They said three or four marches to get through the mines of Moria. Three or four marches would be, like, three or four days, right? Even then, think about it it this way. They're stumbling around in the dark. They have no source of light except Gandalf's staff. They're groping around these, like, narrow passages and rooms. They have no idea what direction they're going in. And it's 40 miles and only three or four days? That's insane. Tolkien just didn't know how how far things were. Well, yeah, as evidenced by Pippin apparently jumping seven feet. Oh my god, right? (laughs) I looked that up because I was like, there's no way... Right, yeah. so there's a chasm that they encounter that is more than seven feet across, and Tolkien writes something along the lines of, it took Pippin a really long time to work up the courage to jump it. And I sat there going... Yeah, he was like, Pippin was a little bitch about this seven-foot chasm. Right, and I sat there going, okay, with a running start, what's the average human jump distance? With a running start, it's 10 feet. For the average human being, who is definitely much taller than a hobbit, how is someone who's like three to three and a half feet tall supposed to clear a seven-foot distance in the dark on rocky terrain? Presumably this is why in the movie they decided to, slightly more realistically, have the men toss them (laughs) across the chasm. Yeet the hobbits. Yeah. (laughs) Here in this chapter, like Tolkien comes off like a... Like a very um, sophomoric writer that is just talking about like girls with like triple E's or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's so funny because you get the sense that Tolkien spends so much time and effort on like certain parts of his writing, like the mapping out of what this world is going to look like, the languages that are involved. And then there's some things where he's just like, I don't know, 40 miles, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's the same thing. This is this is the same oversight that um that caused the whole Eagles thing. Could have seen a lot of this in advance. <laughs> and he just didn't. Could have used a good editor. Yeah, that's that sense of like you want to fix that's him. The, that's mm-hmm. mm-hmm. It's the red pen, right? Of like, oh come on, buddy. You needed like three sentences here to change this and you hecked it up. I, I'm interested to know, do you guys feel like this when like when you read most books like do you have this feeling of there are things i i could have changed and made this a little bit better or is this unique to this experience i think i actually don't feel like this with books in general i'm doing it because it's fun to do with y'all typically i think when i read a book i'm not looking for the things that i don't like about it or i'm not i'm not looking for i guess elements of elements of plot that i'm that i don't like I think typically when I read a book, I I assume that most of the choices that the author makes are for the purpose of, um, you know, delivering some some overall message or vibe, and the interesting challenge of reading is figuring out what that is supposed to be, like changing myself and changing my own like experience as a reader or my own expectations of what literature is to to kind of suit what this book is doing. Mm-hmm. So I think that's not like it's typically just not my approach to reading in general. 
yeah, I I was just interested to know like how we read things because I mean, Ishani, what about you? How do you feel about? I am the total opposite of what Wanda was describing in that I frequently read books and sit there and go, well, that was a bad choice, right? Or that was, I mean, in the sense of obviously there are plenty of books that I read and enjoy and I don't have any major criticisms of them, but there are definitely times where I go in wanting to like a book and end up being really frustrated with the way it feels like an author has maybe mishandled mm-hmm. things, mm-hmm. Um, you know, has taken a good idea and executed badly upon it. Do you expect to like books when you start reading them? Like, do you do you do you try to pick things that you think you're going to really enjoy? Yeah, I mean, with a couple of exceptions, right? I think. If I am choosing a book for myself, I'm choosing it because I think I will like it. So I always go in hoping I'll like a book. Um, there are a couple of times... Yeah, but if Navi has recommended it, then she's definitely not going to like no, it. No, there's like a 50% chance that I'll like it. And there's a 50% <laughs> chance that I'll think it's absolute nonsense. Um, some of your recommendations have been great. And some of them I've been like, I'm angry about the fact that I'm reading this. But what about you? Do you feel like you read books sort of with that critical eye? I think no. Um, I I tend to, like, finish... This is both with books and, like, any form of media that I consume. I do it with movies and shows. I tend to, like, consume the whole thing and then make up my mind whether I liked it as a whole or not. Yeah. And I, I tend not to be very critical about, like, the individual events involved. So, like, I would not read this book and then be like, man, I... I am thinking in my mind of all these things I would fix because at the end of the day, I liked the book. So I think I would just like remember that in the end. And it's, it's been a really interesting experience doing this because it going through it and analyzing it in this depth and, and looking at each chapter this way, I am realizing that there's a lot that I overlook when I read books because I'm not thinking critically about them. I am just kind of taking them as a sum of the parts as instead of, actually applying any kind of critical thinking on each individual section and so yeah it's i i'm i'm kind of enjoying it though i'm I'm enjoying doing it this way i'm I'm pretty sure this is what my well i guess our teachers wanted us to do all along (laughs) a teacher who just like who's like this is how you do it and you look over their shoulder and they're just putting frowny faces next to like various parts of the book they're like not good not good (laughs) But yeah, it's interesting because like I, all of my um, critical thinking about books has been restricted to like academic reading of them. I've never kind of taken that same lens to the reading that I do for leisure. So it's pretty interesting to do that. Yeah, I think once you're actually like put under the gun to describe whether or not you like something, you become a little bit more attentive to how you're feeling throughout the experience. Because I remember something that like I got told in a film class one time, which is that for most people, whether or not you like a film depends on how you feel about like the last third of the film. And I, I, I have found that to be true for most of the movies that I've seen. But for the ones where I go back and I'll watch it a few times, then I end up picking up things about the earlier parts of the movie that I that I like or don't like. And and actually watching something more than once or reading something more than once will give me a better idea of whether I actually do like it. I feel like for me, it depends a lot on this discussion that we're having, actually, because I mean, even recently, Wanda and I rewatched Pride and Prejudice, which is like, we love this movie. Not anymore. Watching it. 
Well, well, watching it together and like discussing it, suddenly we found ourselves being like super critical of this relationship in the movie. And I've never done that before where I've always just kind of like accepted it. Like I didn't really care so much about the relationship in the movie so much as like how I consume art where Mm -hmm. I was kind of like, am I thinking critically enough about the things I consume if nobody is pushing me to do that? I think there's definitely an element where the discussion that we're doing prompts us to think about what we're reading because we all kind of feel that pressure of, I want to have something to say when we (laughs) sit down to record. But I also wonder how much taking it in chunks gives us the opportunity to be sort of fine-grained because I think if we said, okay, we're going to read Fellowship and then we're going to sit down and talk about it. There's so much that happens that we would inevitably pick out like a handful of the big things and a lot of the little details would get missed, right? We wouldn't spend time talking about how Tolkien writes action scenes if we were just trying to talk about the entirety of fellowship in a single sitting. Right. So I think there's that piece of it too where one of the kind of enjoyable parts of this exercise is that we get to kind of sit with the little nitty-gritty bits of it for better and worse thank you for listening to one does not simply this episode was edited by ashani you can find us on twitter at odns pod and tumblr at one does not simply pod special thanks to andrew sneha and all our listeners for joining us on this journey Wanda, I saw a picture of Keanu Reeves yesterday, and I thought it was you. <laughs> and I don't know why this happened. What? I'm not sure how just, you like, got to that. It just popped up on Instagram, and I was scrolling through, and I just, like, assumed it was your account. But then I scrolled back, and it was Keanu Reeves. <laughs>